arrests have to do with us? Second, what does Jesus' response to his arrest point us to? And third, and lastly, where does Jesus' arrest leave us? First, what does Jesus' arrest have to do with us? From a geographical, historical, and even cultural perspective, nothing could be further from us sitting here in Bankstown, Salvation Army Church, 5 p.m., 18th November 2018, than Jesus' arrest in the Mount of Olives, first century Palestine. At first glance, it seems like there's nothing in the story that even resembles something that we might come across here. But when we look more closely at what's happening in Jesus' arrest, we realize something there that's gnawing away at us. There's a pathetic humanness to this story. It's human because it's about friendship, something most of us want and need and treasure. There's a sacred bond we build when we make a friend. It's about trust. It's about honor. It's about mutual love. But it's also pathetic because it's about friendship tested and found wanting, something that most of us dread. We dread the loss of a friend at the best of times, but particularly when there's a loss of friendship through a loss of trust and mutual honor. Nothing destroys trust more in a relationship than betrayal and abandonment. And these are words we don't use lightly, and that's because they're serious charges. We don't say to a friend, you betrayed me. We don't say to someone, you abandoned me. We don't say these things without encountering defensiveness and hurt. That's because when we use these words, we're signaling that we've gone nuclear on a relationship. It's past the time for negotiation, cold wars, war of words. There's the bite of action behind threats and provocation. Betrayal is actively destroying another person's honour while chasing after your own agenda. To Judas, Jesus was worth no more than 30 pieces of silver that he was looking for. He no longer saw him as Lord, teacher or master, but as a means to get what he wanted. Still, the sting of betrayal is, is in the relationship that it presumes. You see, when, Jesus, when Judas betrayed Jesus, he wasn't an enemy. He was a friend. He came in disguise as a friend, as one of the twelve. And more than that, he came with honour and affection. Mark says that Judas approaches Jesus, calling out Rabbi, and kissed him. Not just a peck on the cheek, but a full embrace, the way you would when you meet your loved ones at the airport. And yet, he came with the enemy. Verse 43 says, With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. His entire ruse dripped with hypocrisy and deceit. The kiss and the embrace was a signal to identify Jesus so the enemy would capture the right man. Earlier this year, we had a group of about eight boys come over for my eldest birthday and we went out to play laser tag. We split up into teams of threes and we were in different colours. And I mean, the goal of laser tag is you had to go in and protect your territory and, and keep your base from being destroyed. And I haven't played laser tag for about 20 years and to play it with nine-year-olds 
The lady who sold me the ticket said, you're not coming out alive. <laughs> At first, you go into an arena, which is indoors, and it's pitch black. You've got no idea where your base is. You only know who your team members are because you've got these flashing colored lights. And when you go in, you go in as a team and you find your base. And once you've found it, you keep quiet about it. You don't want to lead your enemies there. If you're on the team, you don't bring the bad guys to your base camp. G Judas led Jesus' enemy to find him at his favorite rendezvous with his disciples. His betrayal showed how much he despised Jesus at that point. Abandonment, on the other hand, is failing to act to protect someone's honor and life, but leaving them alone to fend for themselves. Verse 50 reads, Everyone deserted him and fled. Not a friend in sight. They all abandoned him. I came to understand a little bit about abandonment when I was a junior doctor looking after elderly patients in a geriatrics ward. And one man in particular would talk with me as I charted his medications and I checked his blood pressure, took his blood, listened to his lungs. And at the end of his hospital stay, he said to me, it's time for me to go home today, but I'd rather stay in hospital. Every day you come to see me and listen to me, you treat me better than my own children and my family. There's something troubling about that, isn't there? I was paid to pay attention to him, to care for him. Out of obligation, I looked after him. But he thirsted after human contact and relationship, even from a stranger, because he was so alone and abandoned by his own family. Even though only a few hours back, all of the disciples had protested when Jesus said that they'd desert him. Not one of them would keep their word. They were overwhelmed by the violence of the mob that you saw. Jesus' friends legged it into the darkness when it mattered. That's, when Je that's what Jesus faced when he was arrested. Both the active poison of betrayal and the bitter wind of abandonment. Jesus endured complete human rejection. His arrest encounter left him completely alone. Maybe at this point you're thinking, I've never been betrayed or abandoned. Or perhaps even, I've never betrayed or abandoned anyone. So what does this have to do with me? I want to suggest to you that we actually do think of these things all the time. If we're honest, we constantly weigh up our friendships, our relationships with those we trust. And we're always subconsciously wondering to ourselves, would you betray me? Would you abandon me? When we do that, it's really the flip side to the other side of the question. Do you love me and respect me? Will you stay with me? They say up to a certain age, children, the key question they're asking in all of their actions and interactions with adults is, do you love me? But I want to wager to you that it's a question we ask the whole of our lives, just in different ways. What does Jesus' arrest have to do with us? Jesus endured complete human rejection. It has to do with us because in it, he experienced what every human dreads and suffered the loss of love and companionship we all need. Second, what does Jesus' response to arrest point us to? Well, in one breath, Jesus says two things. First, he's angry 
at the injustice of being treated like a dangerous criminal. Verses 47, uh, 48 to 49 reads, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. And these words expose the orders given to them by the religious leaders. Jesus was to be taken by force at night so that he'd go quietly. The fact was that they knew if he was taken in daylight, there'd be a riot. Jesus was a popular teacher. On charisma points, it was Jesus 1,000, Jewish authority zero. The crowd loved him because he stirred them up to think about what the scriptures really taught. He mocked the authorities for their slavish regard for regulations and flagrant disregard what God wanted. And so just to make sure there'd be absolutely no resistance, the authorities sent a group of armed, violent men to apprehend Jesus in darkness. The injustice is palpable in Jesus' anger. He was an unarmed, itinerant teacher who taught. He'd done nothing wrong. This was a wrongful arrest. Yet Jesus' enemies were so hostile and seething with jealousy that they'd already determined him guilty. All that remained was to arrest him. But secondly, even though he's angry, Jesus seems passive. He seems to be allowing them to do what they wanted to. I mean, our natural instinct would have been to flee or to fight, but he doesn't. He stays. And his reason is, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Scripture is Jesus' leaning post. It's what he's depending on this dark night. When all have fallen away, what remains for Jesus is his hope in God's word. In fact, he goes further. He says that God's word has dictated that all of this would happen. So let God's word be true. To the very end, Jesus refuses to dishonor God's word. In the face of complete desertion and hostility, Jesus rests on scripture. He allows his ridiculous arrest so that scripture might be fulfilled. What does Jesus' arrest point us to? Uh, his words point us to scripture being fulfilled in his unjust arrest. God's word had actually already spoken of this event. God himself willed for this to happen. In fact, hundreds of years before this, the prophet Isaiah had spoken of a suffering servant. Jesus here identifies himself with this servant. Let's have a look at some of these passages. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, speaks of him as one despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering. And that's how Jesus finds himself in his betrayal and abandonment. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And that's how Jesus faced his opponents. But here is the shocking part. The prophecy goes on to say in verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Jesus knew the kind of death he would die. It'd be, the one, it'd be a kind of death in which he'd be alone in the face of gross injustice. Yet... There was a point to it. The point was that he'd suffer and be crushed, not by humans only, 
but for humans by his heavenly Father. His own heavenly Father would make his life an offering for sin. What does that mean for us? Betrayal, abandonment, and open hostility to God's chosen one. That's what the characters in this story have done to Jesus. They've done wrong to Jesus, and they deserve judgment. But I wonder whether we'd allow ourselves to think about our own relationship with God on these terms. Maybe this afternoon you're not willing to accept that there's a good God. Everything he's ever said and done repulses you in its authority and its weight. It crushes you. The life he commands seems heavy and not light. And what's more to you, the church is a farce. It it seems to be a collection of like-minded hypocrites who just act nice but are full of greed and self-interest. Maybe you've been hurt by some of these people who call themselves Christians. Or worse still, you may have seen first-hand betrayal and abandonment between Christians within churches themselves. I want to say to you, thank you for being here. I want to say that Jesus' arrest shows us that God is not against you. In fact, Jesus' arrest and coming death shows us what God would allow his beloved son to endure for people like us, natural enemies of God. He'd let him endure such things to, in order to bring us back to him. He loves us not just to the moon and back. He loves us from the heavens and back. You don't have to be against him. But I also want to say sorry to churches and Christians have hurt you, perhaps misrepresented to you what God's community should be like. Churches and Christians need to own up to the fact that we, as imperfect followers of Jesus, also continue to dishonor God with our lives by mistreating the stranger and other Christians alike. And we need to make amends. That's why this afternoon, if you do believe that there's a loving God, we want to get it right. I want to ask you to think with me about how our relationship with God looks like. Is it a relationship in which we honour him or dishonour him? Because if we would dare to treat God with dishonour, is it any wonder that we would hurt our fellow humans? who are made in the image of God. You know, in some places of the world, it's against the law to speak badly of the ruling sovereign. If you did so, you could end up in jail. Now, if that were so, then we deserve nothing but death from God. Because every replacement for God that we seek, be it comfort or wealth or pleasure or fame, is a betrayal in our relationship to God. Have we betrayed God? Everything that displaces him from his rightful place as the king of the universe and the king of our lives robs him of honour. We make things worth more than him. In his anger, he has every right to condemn and destroy us. But in his mercy, he refrains. On the flip side, we abandon God by disengaging from him. I don't know about you, but I've received so many scam calls to my mobile phone that I've now proactively taken the position that whenever my phone rings and it says private number, I won't answer it. I'll ignore it. I let it ring through. The person will leave a voicemail. But what if that person were God? Sometimes we treat God as if he's calling through a private number, don't we? We ignore it, especially if the name on the phone says God. We treat him as if we didn't know him. We just keep on tracking along, saying things with our mouths that sound spiritual and religious, 
but our actions and hearts are far from him. In fact, deep inside, we're miles away from where God is. On the outside, we're worshippers of God, and on the inside, we've abandoned him for something else. Jesus' arrest points us to the fact that in God's word itself, God promises he'd look past the dishonor we subject him to in our lives. Instead, his son would be arrested, endure betrayal and abandonment and hostility, and ultimately die so that our relational standoff with God might be healed. In our next and final question, we'll find out why. Our last question is, where does Jesus' arrest leave us? Jesus has encountered his betrayer. His enemies have captured him. His followers have deserted him. One more character unique to the Gospel of Mark remains. Verse 51 to 52. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Who this young man is, nobody knows for sure. Yet in a way, his identity is irrelevant. What matters is that he's close enough to Jesus to want to know what happens. And yet at the moment of danger, he flees. And as he flees, he suffers a wardrobe malfunction and he runs away naked. Now, in our world and in Jesus' day, nakedness carries with it the sense of shame and humiliation. As this young man ran naked from the garden, it would have been shameful, both because he was unclothed and because he was fleeing like a coward. But it reminds us of another day in another garden. After they disobeyed God, Adam and Eve found out for the first time that they were naked. And as they hid in the bushes, ironically, from an all-seeing, all-powerful God, they covered themselves with clumps of leaves, hiding absolutely nothing. God finds them and asks them, Who told you that you were naked? The question unravels their guilt. You see, shame is often related to guilt. It's how we perceive ourselves after we've done something wrong. When I tell my child off for disobeying me, saying, I told you to stop painting on a wall, why do you disobey me, you willful, rotten child? Their disobedience arouses guilt, but my indictment of who they are because of it, my calling them willful and rotten, brings out shame in them. And so it is with us. We've done something wrong. We've done something unmentionable. We've seen or tried something irreversible. And we feel guilty for our action but we feel ashamed of ourselves. And when we experience shame, it's, it's a self-evaluation of how we or others would see us. It comes from some wrong or dishonour either we've committed or someone has done to us. All of a sudden, we see something about ourselves that we find painful to look at, something we'd rather hide. And that's what shame does. Earlier this year, three Australian cricketers were embroiled in a ball-tempering, cheating scandal. The outcry that followed was a media witch hunt. They'd brought dishonour onto their team, their sport and their nation. And for about two weeks, intense media scrutiny and hostile voices surrounded them, calling for their heads. And in the midst of it, a brave young man named Stephen Smith stood down as the captain of the Australian cricket team. I say brave not because he was perfect, 
but because he honestly confronted his shame in a press conference. He admitted wrongdoing, and Australians saw Stephen Smith look into the mirror and face up to his shame in a moment of exposure and nakedness. Maybe like this young man in Mark's story, we find ourselves exposed and naked when we encounter Jesus at his arrest because there's no place to hide. We don't want to be Judas, the hated traitor. We don't want to be the cowardly deserters. And we're definitely not in the crowd that's there to lynch an innocent man. We're left like the unidentified young man, seeking but afraid. We want to be a follower, but at the critical juncture, we're gripped by fear. Maybe that's where you're at this afternoon. You're afraid of what you might find when Jesus looks through you. You're afraid that your guilt and shame will be exposed. Jesus' arrest leaves us running in our nakedness. But the key issue is this. Is it away from God or is it towards him? My hope and prayer is that it's towards him. Because you know, God has a history of covering up nakedness. When Adam and Eve came to him with dangling leaves, he took them. He killed an animal and gave them animal skins for covering. Even though they had dishonored him in their disobedience, he loved them. And to cover their shame, a life was taken. Adam and Eve had to receive that gift and cover themselves up. Just a few hours after his arrest, Jesus would also be stripped and hung naked upon a cross. He'd be shamed, mocked and scorned, all in fulfilment of scripture. He'd cry out in the midst of extreme pain and anguish because of ultimate abandonment by his heavenly father. He'd scream, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' arrest leaves us with the reality of the cross where our nakedness would be covered by the death of one cruelly betrayed, one unlovingly abandoned, and one unjustly punished, but just as God had promised in his scriptures. Jesus' arrest leaves us with the opportunity to be covered as he died naked and ashamed. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, For he was cut off from the land of the living, For the transgression or sin of my people, he was punished. This afternoon, as you watch an innocent man captured, maybe you feel compelled that something's wrong in this scene. Something ugly and shameful is happening. And you can't quite put your finger on it. And suddenly you realize that you're feeling naked and exposed watching on because the dishonor against God that you've been hiding is now revealed by what Jesus is going through. The way we've acted against God is what has put Jesus there. And if this is you, then come. Let's name our shame and ask God to reveal what idols we've been carrying. Let's ask to be covered by Christ's death. He's not ashamed of us. He was made naked and ashamed so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus' arrest is just a small part of the bigger picture of Mark's true crime story. But in Mark's the beginning of Jesus' descent into deepest misery. From this point on, until his death on the cross, Jesus is subjected to increasing degradation. In the end, what was Jesus' arrest about? In painful detail, the arrest removes the layers of friendship and trust that insulated Jesus in his life. Betrayal and abandonment from those closest to him leaves him exposed. And then at his most vulnerable, he's captured as a common criminal 
even though he did nothing wrong. He does so to fulfill God's promise as found in scriptures. And as he goes to the cross, our shame and our nakedness is covered so that we might be reconciled to God. Jesus endures total human rejection so that we might be accepted by God.